Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Niall Jefferson. Today I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Cooper. Dr. Cooper graduated with honours from the University of Sydney. He then undertook training in radiation oncology and became a fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Radiologists. He was appointed at St. Vincent's Hospital in 94. He currently chairs the multidisciplinary head and neck unit at the St. Vincent's Hospital and is a lecturer at the Australian School of Advanced Medicine, Macquarie University Hospital. His specialty area of interest is in the treatment of head and neck cancers, and it's a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. How are you, Dr. Cooper? Thank you very much for inviting me. So our topic today is going to be radiation therapy, and particularly to the head and neck region. So just in general terms, what is radiotherapy and how long have we been using it? Okay. Well, radiation therapy is the medical subspecialty which uses ionising radiation to treat predominantly malignant disease. Now, Rontgen in 1895 found the X-ray, which essentially is a photon, uh, photons being uh, that type of energy we're used to using through a light, but of increasing energy, they become increasingly penetrating. Low energy X-rays in the kilovoltage range can be used to treat relatively superficial tumours such as BCCs and SCCs. But to treat more deeply placed tumours, you need more penetrating radiation, such that the history of radiotherapy has been about developing equipment which has able to produce energy uh, X-rays of increasing energy to treat more deeply placed disease. So we went through the superficial radiation era, orthovoltage, into the megavoltage era, initially using the cobalt-60 source, but subsequently linear accelerators. More recently, it's been possible to develop particles, and uh, initially this was an electron beam, but it's now possible to use all sorts of particles, from protons to charged heavy particles, to treat uh, deeply placed tumours. How does radiotherapy work? Essentially, radiation is bad for uh, for mammalian cells. It's possible to damage cells, with the target being the DNA, and cause cellular death. The reason why radiation therapy can be helpful is that malignant cells are more susceptible to the effects of ionising radiation than normal tissue cells. As a consequence, by fractionating treatment, we can exploit differences in repair between malignant cells and normal tissue cells and gain a therapeutic benefit such that it's possible to sterilise a target volume and kill off all of the tumour cells within the available therapeutic window such that the injury to the normal tissue is minimised. Within that of uh, fractionation, so we've talked about different types of uh, voltages that can be used. What then are the different types of fractionation? We hear lots of different terms out there. How do you how do you demystify that? Well, by fractionating treatment, we exploit these differences in repair between the malignant cells and the normal tissue cells. Other things that happen during a course of fractionated radiation is that you get redistribution of cells into more sensitive phases of the cell cycle and reoxygenation of the tumour such that the oxygen is able to penetrate into relatively hypoxic areas of the tumour. 
these things then uh, facilitate the preferential cell killing between the normal tissues and the malignant cells. Uh, in terms of different fractionation schedules, essentially the history of radiation has been about exploring different total doses and dose per fraction and different interfraction times to try to find the best strategy for achieving the uh, treatment intent. For example, if the treatment intent is cure, we know that we need to use doses of the order of 66 to 70 gray over a six and a half to seven week period to give a satisfactory probability of infield control. However, if the intention of treatment is simply to try and significantly knock the disease down, for example, produce shrinkage or relief pain, short of absolutely sterilizing the volume, then doses of the order of 20 to 30 gray in five to 10 fractions over a week to two weeks will achieve that endpoint. So what matters in the uh, treatment intent is total dose, dose per fraction, and the overall treatment time, and this results in a tumor control probability. And that tumor control probability will be couched around the tumor intent, the treatment intent, that is cure uh, as an adjunct to some other strategy, typically surgery, sometimes chemotherapy, or without um, curative intent, such that we're simply trying to relieve a particular symptom. What is concomitant boost? So a concomitant boost is where one is trying to uh, deliver additional radiation to a tightly defined volume, typically the bulk of the tumour. Now, historically, the boost would be delivered at the end of treatment to the area of the maximum disease burden, such that the first six weeks of therapy may be to the main volume, and then during the last week of treatment, one would cone down to where the tumour was prior to surgery, or may have been if the, an operation was not being employed, such that this area received the maximum dose. It could be given at the end of treatment, or it could be given as a second smaller fraction later in the day, so that it was given concurrently during the course of therapy. However, with increasing the sophistication of the available equipment, it's possible now to give a concomitant boost during the uh, initial fraction of therapy such that the volume is targeted uh, more precisely in a final last bit of radiation given to that area each day. Going back to fractionation just for a moment, you mentioned that over time we've tried to establish which is, is the best amount of fractions over which period of time. Is, is there now a, a key type of fractionation maximum dose and period to give it, or are we still learning it, or is it different for everybody? Essentially, we know that doses of the order of 1.8 gray to 2.2 gray per day over five treatments per week over a period of six to seven weeks uh, convey the maximum probability of infield control with the lowest normal tissue complication probability. Now, that's for high energy photons as one uh, achieves with a linear accelerator. If the treatment intent is not cure, such as uh, an adjunctive strategy, then the total doses can be lower, and these will typically be of the range of 50 to 60 gray, again in approximately 1.8 to 2 gray fractions. If, however, the treatment intent is palliative, then there are a number of options available from a single fraction of approximately 8 gray 
to a short course of treatment over one week where a dose of 20 gray is given in four gray fractions or sometimes a slightly higher dose of the order of 30 to 36 gray over a fortnight. So total dose and dose per fraction are linked by volume and the treatment intent. We've talked about fractionation and the different doses that we can give Particularly in the head and neck, there are a number of nuances with the uh, structures and particularly uh, structures surrounding um, those areas. How does that impact upon which way we deliver radiotherapy? It's probably fair to say that um, the radiation oncology industry has been characterised by increasing complexity. By that, I'm referring to increasingly sophisticated treatment machines linked to uh, very complex uh, computer systems which can uh, calculate the radiation dose symmetry uh, more and more accurately. So the computer revolution has enabled us to become more finessed in how we apply radiation to the various uh, target volumes. Now in the head and neck area, the various normal tissue structures do have different tolerance doses. Probably the most sensitive organ is the lens of the eye, wherein once 8 to 10 gray is surpassed in two gray fractions, then the risk of cataract formation rapidly increases. And you see a dense radiation-induced cataract appearing over 6 to 10 years post-treatment. Other tissues, such as the salivary tissues, start to lose function after a course of fractionated radiation therapy when a dose of 20 to 25 gray is exceeded. Critical normal tissues, however, uh, that we worry most about are the spinal cord and brainstem. Here, once doses of the order of 50 gray are exceeded, one starts to run the risk of transverse myelitis, uh, spinal cord injury, quadriplegia. Obviously, these catastrophic complications really can't be accepted under any circumstances, and so they become a hard constraint into which we uh, confine our doses. Other organ systems are relatively radiation resistant. For example, cells which are post-mitotic, non-dividing, such as the brachial plexus, um, the vagal nerve, are quite radiation resistant and there is only a small risk of radiation injury from even quite high doses of radiation therapy. So it is that the normal tissues have different doses and the art of radiation oncology is to achieve the tumorocidal dose to the target volume within the constraints of the adjacent normal tissues. Does size matter? And by that do I, I mean does bulk or tumour bulk have a significant impact on the role of radiotherapy, certainly as a primary modality treatment? Certainly uh, tumour bulk is one of a number of factors that need to be considered in discerning the appropriate uh, treatment strategy. Uh, for a given cell line, more disease requires more dose or at least the probability of sterilising that tumour volume can be in improved by increasing dose. Uh, so yes, uh, size and bulk does matter. 
However, cell lines uh, do differ in their expected radiation sensitivity. There are some cell lines which are exquisitely sensitive to radiation therapy, and these include the uh, lymphomatous cell lines, the leukemic cell lines, which will melt away with comparatively low doses. Squamous cell carcinoma is of intermediate to slightly higher uh, radiation resistance, such that doses of 66 to 70 gray will be required to sterilize tumor volumes of the order of three centimeters. However, there are differences in squamous cell carcinomas and the current HPV epidemic that we're seeing, the P16 positive tumors, are characterized by a particular radiation sensitivity and it's possible to sterilize these types of tumors with slightly lower doses. Uh, adenocarcinomas, melanomas, uh, these tumors are characteristically more radiation resistant still, as are the soft tissue sarcomas. So being somewhat surgically inclined, we do tend to have a, a bent towards surgery. As a, uh, as a radiation oncologist, in broad terms, certainly from a, a head and neck point of view, what are the benefits in general terms of radiotherapy? We look at the role of radiation in three distinct subsets. Always I encourage our trainees to ask, what is the intention of treatment? What is it that we're looking to do? How are we going to benefit the patient? And essentially, there are only three valid reasons and a bunch of not quite as valid reasons. Obviously, to cure patients, we're going to give that a big tick. If cure is not possible, we're going to have them living longer. And if neither of those things is possible, well, we want them to have a better quality of life. There are many other reasons why people get their arm twisted to treat patients. Sometimes it's so that they can be seen to be doing something. Sometimes you wonder about uh, the reasons why some clinicians embark on the treatment strategies they do. However, for me, it's cure, live longer, live better. With radiation therapy then, we're going to look at treatment as definitive radiation therapy with curative intent. Possibly more commonly, it's going to be an adjunct to a multimodality uh, treatment strategy, usually surgically based, but not exclusively so. Sometimes it will be post-induction chemotherapy, depending upon the clinical problem. Uh, and of course, the palliative role of radiation therapy, wherein we know we can't cure a patient, but we can relieve some symptom that's meaningful to the patient, whether it's pain, uh, fungation, bleeding, obstruction, wherein tumour shrinkage can improve their quality of life. What are the expected in-treatment side effects for patients undergoing uh, radiotherapy? And I suppose restricting this to external beam radiotherapy to the head and neck. Well, we break side effects of treatment up into two types. We have our acute side effects and our late side effects. <clears throat> Fundamentally, the acute side effects represent an inflammatory response of the normal tissues to the radiation injury. So we look at skin and we see erythema. And this can be graded from one to four, from barely discernible to moist desquamation and ulceration. We have a reaction on the mucosa, which can be trivial to quite extreme, such that you have frank ulceration and bleeding. 
we have a change in the salivary gland function. Not so much drying, though drying is the word that's most commonly used, but to a change in salivary consistency such that the serosal component is, is preferentially reduced and we're left with the more tenacious mucoprotein secretions which produce a thicker gummier spin, a spit. We have effects on the bone, uh, but in the short term these are not readily apparent. In the longer term, however, subsequent bony injury can result in problems of repair and uh, bone breakdown and osteoradionecrosis. So with radiation injury, it's a bit like surgery. Uh, the surgical team would accept that to do an operation, you have to make a cut and there's likely to be a scar. With radiation therapy, there will be some short-term inflammatory-mediated acute normal tissue reactions which typically prove self-limiting. The aim of the treatment is to construct it such that those inflammatory reactions are tolerable and the risk of late injury to the normal tissues are minimised. The reason for that is that most late radiation injuries are difficult to treat because they relate to cell death which can't be repaired by the body and you get loss of that organ function. There has been talk uh, more so recently and certainly a lot of effort to try and reduce the morbidity related to radiotherapy by other adjunctive measures during the course of treatment. What is the future in that regard? Look, there's no doubt that our treatment strategies are becoming more and more complex and the aim of that complexity is to improve the probability of cure and achieve that at a lower cost both in the short term and the long term. So increasingly we're integrating multimodality strategies, different surgical approaches, modifications to the extent of, of surgery or the technology that's being employed. But similarly in radiation therapy we're looking at finessing our dose and the equipment that delivers that dose to make it more and more targeted and uh, limit our dose to uh, adjacent normal tissues. So if you look at uh, the recent uh, evolution of radiation oncology, we've had a, a number of really material improvements. Firstly, image-guided radiation therapy, where daily cone beam CT can be used to map to within plus or minus one to two millimetres the isocenter of the uh, treatment field on a daily basis to the normal tissue anatomy. So this greatly reduces variance and geographical miss. Secondly, we've got uh, VMAT technologies, which are about dynamically changing the shielding and the intensity of the beam, such that the beam can be sculpted around normal tissues and targeted into the tumour volume. Thirdly, we've got stereotactic solutions, such that we can now use multiple non-coplanar beams with greater accuracy to target the uh, tumour volume. In particular, there's been the development of uh, uh, sophisticated dedicated equipment such as the CyberKnife or the GammaKnife uh, to achieve these endpoints. So I think the future of radiation oncology, despite it fundamentally being a one-drug business, is uh, very exciting. Well, thanks very much uh, for that, discuss that discussion. We'll end with the final word. So the final word is an opportunity for you to 
discuss something that we haven't covered over the course of this interview or to reiterate a component of the interview that particularly resonates with any discussion on radiation therapy, particularly the head and neck. So I'll hand it over to you for the final word. Look, for me, uh, if you've got an interest in treating head and neck cancer, uh, you really can't do that in isolation. If you want to provide a quality service to your patients, you need to be part of a team, a team that works together. Uh, my experience with the team that I work with has been fantastic. Uh, open-minded, hard-working, good-natured people who accept that none of our disciplines have got all the answers. Uh, I think it's critical that you've got an engaged uh, surgical team, whether it's the E&Team team, the skull-based team, uh, the reconstructive team, the dental unit, uh, an engaged medical oncology department who can assist you with the drugs and the care of the patients, uh, a committed radiation oncology service with subspecialty interest in the care of head and neck patients, and all of our co-workers, be they the speech pathologists or the dietitians or the social workers that um, uh, help keep our patients together and help us help them. So for me, I can only say that um, the multidisciplinary team is an asset for head and neck radiation oncology, uh, head and neck radiation service, and uh, I'd encourage those uh, with an interest um, uh, in this area to to find that team that they want to engage with and work with. And if one's not able to do that, then it's probably best to refer those patients onto a unit which can provide those resources and subspecialty skill sets. So I think multidisciplinary care is the way to go. Um, uh, thank you for the opportunity to put that forward. Thanks very much for what I think was a very interesting discussion on a, uh, a complex topic. You can find other topics related to ENT at ENT Expert Opinion. Hello. <laughs> at entexpertopinion.com. Thanks for listening.